0: back to the Overrun podcast. My name is Ed Bowder.
1: I'm Dan Schwester.
0: And today we're going to talk about our wish list for 2020, which it's still odd to me that 2020 is here because I have convinced myself that it's 2006 in perpetuity.
1: Yeah, I I am still thinking it's the millennium. Like it's yeah. <laughs> 2000 and you know my computer's <laughs> going to crash and it's going to be mayhem in the oh streets. My God, remember and, Y2K. Oh, Y2K was out of control.
0: How naive were we? Oh, that, we were. That Y2K was going to be a thing. <laughs> Uh, what a fun time! It was a whole thing. So, we're gonna kind of have more of a free-form discussion on what we want uh, to see coming up in twenty twenty. We also have an interview with Doctor Mark Merlin about his wish list for twenty twenty. So, before we get into our conversation, let's talk to Doctor Merlin. Hey, everybody! Ed Bowder from Overrun Productions here for the Overrun Podcast. I am here with Doctor Mark Merlin, and we are going to talk about his wish list for twenty twenty. So, Doctor Merlin, give me three things you'd like to see happen in pre-hospital medicine in twenty twenty. Well, thanks for having me.
2: Certainly, there is probably a thousand of things. Limiting it down to three is always challenging for me. Uh, certainly, I would say more people aware and following what I'll call the new hemorrhagic shock model. Okay. Certainly, that would be to limit crystalloid, uh, or the dirty uh, the dirty C word, as I call it. So, crystalloid is a bad thing. And certainly, it's not a bad thing for people who are like septic or people who are fevers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's good for it's it's bad for people who are having active bleeding issues. Right. And that active bleeding issue can certainly be trauma like bleeding into the box, which is the chest or the abdomen or, or externally or to the pelvis or the femur. And it can certainly be bad for people who are having GI bleeding, right? Or it can be bad for people who are having a postpartum hemorrhage. But it's it's not bad for people who are volume depleted, it's not bad for people who are septic, it's not bad for just people who are febrile in general. But for people who are bleeding, nobody's bleeding normal saline, so it dilutes or or ringers, so it dilutes out clonic factors, and it makes people actually bleed more. And a little bit of hypotension for somebody who's bleeding is not the worst thing in the world. We've decreased what we consider to be a normal, uh, an acceptable hemoglobin before we tr- start transfusing, and we keep decreasing. Really, since the 80s, since Ken Maddox taught us this, that that we need to keep blood pressures a little bit lower because that helps us form clots particularly like in areas of zone two of the aorta where you're actively bleeding from for a, a lot of different things in medicine. So um, I think people have to understand the crystalloid, uh, the crystalloid model and that model is not giving it routinely and doing other things. And one would be to give uh, blood, right? Where blood is not available, it would be to give uh, uh, plasma. Where plasma not, is not available, right? Then you have to consider what else do I do? and just sticking an IV in a given crystalloid may not be the right thing to do, even for people who are hypotensive. So this model is uh, changing dramatically, and I think we're gonna see a big change. We all got this correct during like the Korean War where we gave low titer or whole blood. We got it right <coughs> uh, recently um, by several articles that have popped up in the last year, and more and more centers are starting to give uh, low titer or whole blood, or they're at least backing off from crystalloid, because believe it or not, we just don't have good science that says crystalloid benefits people. Our knee-jerk reaction has always been just to give crystalloid, because if your blood pressure is 60, then that has to be worse than 70, which has to be worse than 80, which has to be worse than 90, and I say we have to challenge people to say that that may not be true, and you know, the flip side is, you know, one other thing I'll is really my next wish list is the use of push dose pressures for hypertension, and this is like Different though, because people say, Well, how do I justify giving push dose pressures if you're telling me that low blood pressure is not the worst thing in the world? And there's a couple of answers to that. One is giving push dose pressures before your RSI is the right thing to do because we know RSI will essentially make somebody hypotensive, right? So just by doing RSI you just you, you, you create hypotension, prior to in somebody who's um, a trauma patient's bleeding, right? Trauma patient is bleeding, RSI may be a very uh, disastrous thing to do. Um, not that it's never indicated, it's certainly not true, but in general if a trauma patient is doing acceptable in terms of maintaining their airway, a little hypertension is not the worst thing and getting them, you know, a- and making them more hypertensive by RSI may not be a good thing to do. Please don't push those pressures and trauma. doesn't necessarily seem to be the right answer because we've known for years that that uh, pressors and trauma don't really work because your trauma happens all of a sudden and your catecholamine levels are already super high. So a push-dose pressor may not help your catecholamine level and may make you more, cause more rate-related ischemia and have some dire consequences. It seems to be like a pretty good idea though in somebody who's septic, particularly because many of our septic patients have been sick for like, you know, one to three days, if not longer. And they're they're depleted catecholamine levels subsequently giving them catecholamines in the form of phenylephrine, or epinephrine, or another crystal's pressure, seems to be the right thing to do, we believe. There is some science, uh, especially recently, that there is no benefit, but but I, but I, but the problem is, even with that science there, um, we see the numbers go up, and I think there is a benefit to the numbers going up, even though we don't have good outcome studies to show this. I mean, one, anesthesia has been doing this 30, 40 years now, and two, even with that recent literature that came out, you know, to take out all the confounding variables is exceedingly challenge, challenging in septic patients, right? So you need to take that, and, and the authors didn't do that, although they did a, they did a great study. The author, authors really didn't delineate between which patients were septic versus which were trauma versus a variety of other things where post pressures may not be the right thing to do. I still think for sepsis or somebody who were going to RSI for a variety of reasons, a push dose presser to get the blood pressure a little bit higher, maybe at least 90. Right? Nothing super high is probably the right thing to do because I know RSIing somebody's who's circling the drain with a blood pressure of, of 60, you know, or I should say, you know, loss of femoral pulses,
0: um, is could be a very uh, terrible thing to do to somebody. So, for the push dose pressers, for, for those who have been uninitiated, when you're pursuing an RSI in a patient who needs an airway, just go over which push dose push those pressors you prefer or how would you use it if, if a provider hasn't used them before?
2: Yeah. I might mean, say one, probably most important is whatever you have is, is okay. There's sure some theoretical advantages of using something like phenylephrine over epinephrine. but epinephrine is widely used for a variety of conditions in medicine. It's not the worst thing. Perhaps if you're a tachycardic, which many of these people are, phenylephrine might uh, be uh, like a little bit better. That sounds like the right answer. We don't know. We don't have good science to suggest that, but epinephrine can certainly cause more tachycardia than phenylephrine so that could theoretically uh, pose uh, an advantage of of uh, of giving it to a patient And we're really talking about you know with epinephrine we're really talking about uh, pushes at 10 to 20 plus uh, micrograms and phenylephrine we're talking about somewhere around 100 and we're talking and what's more important than one isolated number is repeating it if the blood pressure is not coming up and that all depends upon how catecholamine depleted somebody is and you have no idea right i mean if you get to somebody and they're septic in their nursing home they probably just become septic in the last five minutes right. so you know that they and we have no good measure of medicine to tell acutely wh- how catacomaly depleted somebody is right so because we have no good measure some people just don't respond to pressures very well and some people respond terribly internally. pressures don't work very well in the face of acidosis and that's our other problem that many of our septic patients have high lactic acid levels and pressors don't work very well with high um, with, with with acidosis, so um, you know, that that's what makes it challenging. But I would give repeat doses, and I would really be shooting for blood pressure of 90. Now these are just you know made up numbers to try and get to like a reasonable amount. I mean if you're if your baseline blood pressure is 160 over 100 and you're on two pressors. Man, if you get to be 110, you're hypotensive. As I'm, right. far as yeah. I'm concerned, and if you walk around with a blood pressure of 100 over 70, and you're, you know, thin and young, you know, man, if your blood pressure is 90, you're not that far from your baseline. So, in a perfect world, I would use all of that information, if possible, at the scene of an emergency, to try and figure out where you're shooting for that blood pressure. But if some people tell me that, you know, they're they're shooting for blood pressure 70 because some patient's baseline is 100 over 70, I think that's
0: really intelligent. All right, so we've got the new hemorrhage protocol. We have um, treating people uh, in the field, as we've been discussing here. So, what's your third uh, item on your wish list for twenty twenty?
2: Well, there'll be. Um, I think there'll be a lot of things. Certainly, with um, you know, certainly I guess we'll take the more common calls, and you know, one common call is uh, is shortness of breath. And I think for shortness of breath, I would just tell people to remember that um, with all comers, for everybody who calls nine hundred one, shortness of breath generally has a worse outcome than everybody who calls with chest pain, right? So in all comers in a big population, if you're calling 911 for shortness of breath, your odds for worse outcome is, is greater um, uh, with shortness of breath than chest pain, because chest pain might or might not be cardiac in nature, right? And certainly, shortness of breath, I would think about the things that I could reverse quickly, and the majority of those uh, things are acute decompensated heart failure. And with acute decompensated heart failure, your ma- your major drug-, drug, really, still in, in 2019, 2020, is nitroglycerin, and your major uh, procedure that you're doing is is CPAP, or now you can utilize uh, a BiPAP by, by a new machine on, on the market. And I would pick a number, and then I would titrate up with that because that's really what's going to help these people with acute decompensated heart failure. And then the next, um, you know, next is nitro, 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 and you're talking about big, big doses, and you're talking about bolus doses of, of nitroglycerin um, if your system allows you to do that. So you're talking about 500 mic plus to start at and you keep titrating up it's still silly that in 2019 2020 we still people still see people starting at 10 micrograms a minute that's that's going backwards if you just give something nitro that's actually going and giving less the 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 least the the lowest dose that i ever started a a trital drip at is is 15 micrograms per minute and that's because i'm kind of wimpy and i still came from the era where we used to give uh long low doses there are many people out there And I do this, too, if I'm being brave, is starting at 100 micrograms per minute and then just titrating and titrating up from there. But, um, you know, I would keep on thinking that nitro is my first agent for all the reasons to and to not give LASIKs acutely in the field. And that's a nice, healthy discussion. I think that that discussion is so much less important than giving a big dose of nitro. Right? I mean, if you have any type of transport time to the hospital that's less than one hour, your Lasix is just mattering uh, not uh, very little to to whatever you're doing. Um, And um, and the least you know, so it's really the nitro. And, listen, if you get there and the patient's blood pressure is 240 over 120 and they're in acute encompassing heart failure, I'm happy as can be, right, because i got lots of room to work. If I get there and the patient's blood pressure is 90 and they're in acute encompassing heart failure, I'm worried. My first thought is hypertension plus acute encompassing heart failure equals think about intubation right away, right, because sure. those people are not getting better. They're potentially in cardiogenic shock. And we know cardiogenic shock generally has a, has a bad outcome, if not addressed uh, very, very quickly. So it's nitro, 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 and big, dolices, or, and big boluses. And we're talking about, um, we're talking if you can't give push-dose a nitro, one, convince um, whoever you work for to that you should be giving it. And otherwise, you're giving uh, sublinguals, either sprays or sublingual tablets, and you can double it up, and you give it every three minutes. Although we're all terrible at repeating doses in terms of the number of minutes. So you're giving repeat doses really high, because there's nothing magical about 0.4, 0.4 mg sublingual, that's just the way it comes. And you keep giving it over and over, and you're going to do this. And if you're doing this with, uh, you know, with uh, pressure support, then um, you're probably going to get a lot of people out of the ac- acute. It comes to heart failure. And again, there's a whole lot of people who, when they get a little short of breath and they have has CHF, uh, they're going into their heart failure doc's office and they're getting some just some Lasix and diuresing. That's very different from the people we see, right? right. Very, very different. So, you know, many people think that, you know, acute exacerbations of, of heart failure actually start a week or two beforehand where your left atrial pressure starts to go up. You know, those very, you know, those are very different people than the ones who we're seeing where they quickly go, uh, quickly become short of breath. And even as far as um, the edema to determine how acute this is, just remember, you know, edema is relative to what your baseline is. If you walk around with 1+, and you're 3+, plus today, that's a big deal. If you walk around 3+, and you're 1+, plus today, that's a difference, right? Maybe they're becoming volume depleted for a reason, and they're not actually uh, truly volume overloaded. And uh, and I would remember that.
0: So if I'm a provider and I want to help to change my protocols and I hear all this stuff, I want to change hemorrhage protocol, I want to use push-to-suppressors, I want to change how I'm treating shortness of breath in the field, what are a couple things that a provider could do kind of at a front line talking to their medical director or their program director to try and change that, and then we'll wrap it up from there?
2: Well, they can get the science. They can get the papers. They're always happy to provide some of them. But change takes a while. It just doesn't take a while in the pre-hospital setting. It takes a while in, in the hospital you know, it takes three to ten years to change the way people think about uh, diseases many of these things we're doing we've been talking about um for years i mean even you know double sequence defibrillation you know there have been a couple of papers in you know 1994 about that you know this is nothing is quite brand new um so you know i think it's a matter of just pointing out to people you know what other places are doing because certainly some place across the street or another part of the world is doing something that makes you go, hmm, maybe I'm kind of behind the times. Let's re-look into this. And just be open to the idea that change is okay, right? If people who people who are against change would still be using, if people weren't, again, you know, for change, we still would be using short boards and cravats. We still wouldn't be doing double sequence defibrillation. You know, we still wouldn't be doing all of, you know, all these really cool things we're doing. Um, if people weren't supportive of change. So just because something's working for you, I mean, it's like the people, when we first told people that morphine was bad for acute decompositive heart failure, lots of people said, um, boy, I've given morphine for years and my patients have have, have had a good outcome from giving morphine. And I used to say, but you get morphine for anything and people feel good. You know, right. it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done a good thing. I and mean, we used to use rotating tourniquets, right? right? So we used to do all these things. But then somebody studied it and said, you know, we're really not doing the the, the right thing. So I would say, you know, just be open to change. And the fact that just because you've seen something work really well for years doesn't mean there isn't a better way to do it. All right. Dr. Mark Rowland from the MD1 program. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you to Dr. Merlin for talking to us for his uh, his 2020 wish list. Lots of interesting stuff that he talked about. I do think that we've talked a lot about um, low titer o whole blood. We've talked a lot about using pressors yeah. for shock.
1: I mean, that's been pressors have pushed. Those pressors have been around for years. I mean, right. the, the science is there.
0: Well, so and this is kind of the point that we've talked about, kind of at length both on the show and, and off air that a lot of the stuff that we're finding now is, you know, it's kind of like what's, what's old is new again. Yeah. You know, it's like the low tighter oh, whole blood we know goes back to Korea, you, know, Earlier, and, you know, Yeah. So we're, we're aware of these things. So when we talk about having a wish list for 2020, it really, it's not just for 2020 it's in general, but since we're coming up on the new year, it kind of makes things easier. Right. So, you know, and the other thing is I, I think it's important to mention, you know, Dr. Merlin talked about how, um, you know, chest pain or cardiac events typically present as respiratory distress, which is a bit, which is just, it's just not something that Yeah, that's teach. an
1: important, and, and you know. it's really overlooked.
0: Right. You know, and it should be taught more in EMT classes, and I, I I was happy to hear, you know, if you're going through this program or you're hearing different things you want to do in 2020, how do you take it up to your program director? And, you know, I like the point of get the data, get the research, and, sure. you know, bring it up there and try and change things, so. But what do we want to see change in 2020? Dan, what is your your 2020 wish list?
1: Oh, boy, I've got a lot of things. But if I had to pick, I want it all. (laughs) I want everything. If I had to pick one thing to start, um, I would just like our our professional community to stop eating our young. Ooh, I like that. You know, you see this all the time and, you know, we, we interpreted it as, well, you know, I went through it, so you have to go through it and, you know, we're pushing people away and we're pushing people into situations where they get burned out or where they, they feel like they got to go along to get along. You know, the young, the young people coming into the profession, they're excited. They're, they're interested. Maybe they, you know, maybe we do have to modify how we, we look at the profession but they're motivated. They want to do this. The, the millennial, you know, you can, you know, we slam the me- millennial generation and it's all over the Internet and stuff. But the which, fact is, is they're dedicated. They're they're intelligent. Right. They're, they're they're more up on finding research and finding things that, you know, with the Internet that, that we didn't have at that age. Well, another thing, just just to
0: clarify, because I'm I'm a millennial and I'm turning thirty five in two weeks, which makes me really sad. But like the concept of millennials just being kids now is just not the case, and that's why the whole OK Boomer" thing came around, right. where it's like, "Oh, you damn millennials and your phones!" Like, dude, no, we're not. Like, millennials are part of the workforce. Hey, don't no, blame me. A, I'm Gen X. Like, yeah.
1: <laughs> we're we're the we're the sarcastic nihilists. <laughs> Back so. when punk rock was good. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> don't you forget it. I just
0: have this great image of you going to a club with like black X's drawn on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Grunge going to. <laughs> Go Dan, to Dan Dan Rester, shows no, back in the day. No known member of the Straight Edge movement in the late 80s. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God. That's but ridiculous. But I,
0: I, I do think you're right. I think that we have this impression that... You know, if you had a negative experience during your training, then the other students that you have should also have a negative experience, and it's just it's a self perpetuating cycle. And like I said, you know, we we and we've talked about this at length already on the show numerous times. But you know, we look at the lack of recruitment, we look at the you know shortening of staffs, and we also talk about burnout, and it becomes a self consuming cycle, and we do it to ourselves. Right, and it's something that it's easy to get out of. If you had like if you hated your preceptor. Because they were, you know, mean to you or condescending. All you have to do is not be mean. Yeah, and break the cycle.
1: That's that's the point I'm trying to make. And right. you know, there's a lot of things culturally that we could do to improve. I mean, like I said, this this could be like a 900 page list. Right. Um, but the I think the easiest thing to do is that the people coming into the profession just stop eating them up. Just stop. Yep. Stop beating them down emotionally or or, or you know, peer to peer wise. And, you know, if you're if you're burned out or you're that guy, you know, just think about why you got into the job. Right. You know, think about what you what you, you know, go back to why you're there.
0: Well, and also consider what you knew when you entered your first EMT program. Now, And I, I don't say medic program because there's, you know, if you've been an EMT for 15 years and you were like at a fairly progressive project, you might know more than the average incoming medic student. But consider the situation you were in when you went into, in, into EMT school. Right. If you've been teaching EMTs, you know, for 20 years, you have arguably 20 years of knowledge under your belt. It is not the student's responsibility to know what you know. Correct. It's, you know, they have to have entry-level knowledge when they right. graduate. Right, and we've talked about this but, plenty right, of times. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, yeah. it's
1: like, look, can they hit fastballs? That's what we want them to hit. Then right. teach them. If you want them to do something, you either set the example or you teach them to do it. You know, if they don't listen or they're not open to it, well that's a whole nother issue. So but if, if we're mov- just stop eating our young. We're so hurting the profession.
0: If we're moving forward into twenty twenty and I'm a program director hearing this, like, okay, we have to start changing this culture, what's the first step we take to to kind of adjust this?
1: Well, I, I think you have to set the example. I think you have to get your core group of people together in the program, your formal and informal leaders and just agree, look, we're not doing this. You know, this is where we're going and this is what we want and we're going to model that behavior. And then, you know, everybody else just kind of will go along. You know, there's a, you know, there's very few activists on either side. You know, there's a whole lot of fence sitters. That's fair. Who's going to go? Where are the fence sitters going to go? They're going to go to the side that they see the most. You know, if if there's a ton of negativity, if there's a ton of argument, you know, they're going to go that way. Right. If, if they see positives, even in a, in a challenging environment, you know, and you know, as a, you know, in a management thing, you can do this, you know, in a preceptor environment, you can do this. Yeah. The job's challenging. Yeah. We have some, some things that seem insurmountable now, but other professions went through this too. Right. Well, and, and, and that's the and key to leadership. Developing right? not... our youth and the, yeah. the people coming into the job, you know, following through with culture, following through with an ethos. What do you believe? What do we believe in as an organization? That's really important. Right.
0: Well, and like I said, that's that's the leadership element where, you know, you have to decide what you want, where you want your project to go, and then, right. you know, the right and, steps. And stop,
1: you know, the other thing I'd like to see too is stop, you know, you know, this is not a zero defect world. You know, we're going to make mistakes. Mistakes are going to be made. Okay, we can mitigate them. We can do all different things. But, you know, these new people are going to make mistakes. Don't use it as an excuse to drive them out of the profession.
0: Well, right, and that's the whole, you know, don't sacrifice the good in pursuit of the perfect. Correct. You know, I I don't need entry-level EMTs to be 1,000%, 100% of the time. I need them to be entry-level competent. That's it.
1: Right. You want them to give a shit. I I think that's the big thing. I mean, I can take, you can take the most intellectually challenged marginal EMT. And if they really give a shit, they're going to do decent patient care. They may not, they may not be great on everything, but they're going to be nice to them. They're going to, they're going to treat them well. They're going to take good care of them. That's okay. That's what we want. We can build on the rest, but if you don't give a shit or you're, you're, you're pushing these people where they don't give a shit or you're, you're giving them this, you're setting in the putting out this attitude or this vibe. You're not going to get anything good out of it.
0: Yeah, and again, and that comes down to how you project yourself when you're caring for the patient. Because if you're working as a medic, and your you know new EMT sees you just kind of you know dismissing a case, right?
1: If everything's then, you know, bullshit, then everything's going to be bullshit, right? You know, and yeah. less likely for you to be able to handle the real stuff effectively,
0: right? And that's you know, again, it's not an easy change if you've you know been operating a certain way for your entire career. It's a uh, it's a big change you have to make, but. We'll tell you, uh, my 2020 wish list mm. um, is much more abstract. Yeah. I would like for the New Jersey Devils and Philadelphia Eagles to not be a hot pile of garbage. That's what well, I want. yeah, <laughs> there are, are you looking for a
1: title or are you looking for
0: no, a 500 I, I record want, i want mean, you know. i just want mediocrity at this point that's it and
1: could they? Yeah, i just I mean, want <laughs> it's, it's kind of painful i want to watch.
0: not i want to not sit around my colleagues from new york city and hear about how good their teams are Wow, well, I and mean, the, the giants <laughs> aren't that uh you know but no i i actually my want um aside from that actually the sports thing might make my life easier because if they're both done by january then i can actually study well, that would be cool. uh, But no, my, what I want is, uh, and I, I've been wanting this for a long time, and I think that there might be some changes that might happen in 2020. I want to see implementation of data, um, because I, we're, at the, we're at a point with a lot of different things. And again, you know, we've talked about, you know, blood transfusions and things like that in the field that can actually be implemented. Um, and I want that to be used to kind of change the way that projects run their patient care. Um, okay. You know, I I don't know that we can put it into like a quantifiable database, but I want it to be like, you know what? This intervention works. It's dumb that we're having this debate anymore. Let's move on from that. Yeah. And I, you know, the people that are going to have to do that are going to have to be large urban centers. Um, Um, you know, and
1: maybe a problem.
0: Well, and that's the thing to that note. I also want large urban centers to, you know, be more progressive, um, a lot of places you know there's there's cities in the united states that are very very progressive that are making a lot of changes that work very well um you know and these are places that we talk about all the time you know we all know about seattle and austin travis and date and you know all those people boston Um, boston's another big one and you know there's all but there's also plenty of cities in the united states that that aren't meeting the standard yeah that just are not as progressive as they should be we're not going to name names but no um, we
1: i'm sure everybody can figure out you know well right and
0: that's you know and it, it it might even be cities that you know we're not thinking about um, because ci- city is a broad term. I mean, we're we're in the, the state of New Jersey, and Asbury Park is considered a city, which is adorable because Trenton and Camden are also cities. Mm. Um, you know, so there's different sizes that are taken into account, sure. and there's also different monetary concerns that cities have. But, you know, I do think that there's enough data and information and, you know, communications that can exist between cities that can actually improve patient care. Mm-hmm. When we have a city that has a population, you know, of whatever, 7 million people, there's no reason that your care is substandard, No, you know, um, and I think that again there's there's intangibles that we have to consider but i do think that it's time as a profession we start kind of holding larger places to account because if you have a city that has the type of money and resources to be a progressive ems project you're the ones that are going to lead the change you know i you're not going to see you know a suburban town in iowa causing a lot of significant change to ems and now, i'm not i'm not coming down on iowa um <laughs> You know, or any please don't
1: get angry with us.
0: Wait, <laughs> my apologies to Des Moines. Um, you know, I'm not going down on any one particular area in general. I'm saying that, you know, it applies here too. no suburban project in our area. Single handedly is going to change things. But if there's a big change or if there's data that comes out of New York City, that's, you know, that catches attention. So I think that, you know, it's we need to start doing that more as an industry and it's not to imply that we haven't done it I just think it needs to be actually
1: done a more. here's what I'd like to see in the in the realm of research and I just go with me on this every time there's a study done okay and it's an EMS study it's never the agencies we want to look at it's never the it's I want to see the right the the right side of the bell curve putting out research I want to see austin travis county sharing their data on how they get improvements in care i want to see how seattle king county you know i know they've done stuff with cardiac arrest but i'm sure there's other stuff that they can look at um you know davy fire rescue some of the places where we've talked to the medical directors you know you guys have the ability to drive care forward and I think a lot of times we're getting from the middle of the bell curve or a little left of the bell curve when it comes to research. And that's where you get these headlines like, Oh, paramedics shouldn't intubate, paramedics don't know how to do this. Yeah, ALS care no. is not equated with a survival benefit. Is it because it's the care or is it because it's the people? You know. Right. And that, and we well, have to we have to find that out.
0: Well, and there's also there's you know, there's roadblocks to that type of data coming out, which which can be frustrating. Um
1: Sure, and but I, we're and the and only. But we're the only medical specialty or the me- only medical profession in the world where everybody actively tries to limit our scope of practice. Nobody I, does sure, this yeah. to nursing. Nobody well, does this to respiratory. Nobody does it to doctors. Right. It's it's always oh, paramedics. Slam the door on this. Slam yeah. the door on that. And it, and when you complain about it, you get told, "Well, the data shows negatives." Right. But the data comes from marginal sources or it doesn't come from a program that's progressive right. or it doesn't come from someplace that's doing things the right way yeah of course it's going to look bad i want to see the people who do it well put out data
0: yeah okay i see what you're saying i and i i do agree with that i think that it would be important to at least get that message out um you know I i just think that it's it's more of an issue just getting the numbers together. Oh, well, that's why this is you a know? wish list and not a will get list on what Christmas morning. Um, <laughs> you know, and to that note, like, even though it's, you know, we're recording this in 2019, but we got 2020 coming up. Um, I, I want it. Even as that data gets you know published, I want it available. You know, we, yeah. you know, Mike, Mike and I talked on med school medic about, um, you know, journal feed and QXMD. And we talked about it, you know, in sure. the show in Atlantic city. Um, but, you know, I, I want that information kind of more available to EMS providers. And I don't know if the answer is to make something like, you know, journal feed for EMS papers. Um,
1: but you Too know, much of this stuff is hidden behind paywalls and behind, you know, right. and, I, and I get they got to make my I get it. Yeah. But there's got to be something that you can do.
0: Yeah. They're, they're, you know, and, like
1: if you're a journal, you put your back issues out for free. I mean, I, even that would help, right. like from a year ago. I mean, that's still relevant literature.
0: Right, and these you know these are all big things that you know we we can think about, but that's that's our 2020 wish list. We have uh, lots of stuff sure. to work on in 2020. Lots of good things coming out from our end with yes. Overrun Productions that we'll uh, will announce in January. Um, so yeah, lots Two of good new things. stuff coming up. Yeah, thank you so much for listening for the Overrun. I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster, and we will talk to you in 2020.
1: See you later.